There's a story of a middle-aged farmer back in the day, and his family was into farming. He had farmed, but he really had this passion. He had always wanted to um, be an evangelist. I know that's your, what you desire to do, right? To be an evangelist and to travel around preaching the gospel to neighboring communities and his own communities. And one day, this middle-aged farmer was out plowing the field, and he took a lunch break and sat on his plow and fell asleep after lunch, and then he looked up. He looked up, and he saw a couple of clouds, and these clouds were forming, and they formed the letters P-C, at least in his mind. And he ran back home and he told his wife, see, the desire that I've had my whole life has been confirmed by God. I'm going to go preach Christ. And so this middle-aged farmer sold everything he had, his farm, his equipment, and he goes out to around the area to preach Christ. And he's been doing that for a few weeks and his farmer buddies know what had happened to him. He'd gone and told them what God had done in the cloud. And, And so he comes to, and after one of the sermons that he preached, second or third one, one of his buddies, who realized that he wasn't that good of a preacher, came up to him, and he put his arm around him, and he said, brother, are you sure those words that you saw in the clouds, PC, didn't mean plant corn? I don't want to hear it after the service. I'm not planting corn, y'all. Y'all are rough today. Do we have to have our heads in the clouds to figure out the calling of God in our life, the will of God in our life? Is that what it takes? Does it take looking up at clouds and interpreting in them a certain way? People do that, y'all. I don't know. I don't know if you've ever done weird things to try to interpret the will of God in your life or the calling of God in your life. Do we have to have literally or figuratively, figuratively our heads in the clouds to know the will of God, to know the calling of God? of God in our lives. Webster defines calling in this way broadly. I think it's a helpful definition. It may not be complete, but it's, he says this, calling is a strong urge toward a particular way of life, career, or vocation. Not bad. Biblically, though, calling starts in a different place. The call of God starts with God calling us to himself. And then the calling of God is how we participate in his redemptive work in his world. You see, biblically, before we're called to something, we are called to someone, God himself. We're going to look this morning as we open the book of Ephesians, how do we live in and live out the Christian calling? Turn with me to Ephesians. If you need a Bible, page 976 there. We'll have the words up there. If you've got a Bible, even better. Opening series on Ephesians, Paul's opening words, which we often pass by. You know, Paul, he has these greetings that he greets the people wherever they are, they are and we kind of pass by this opening line oftentimes, but there's much truth about Christian calling this morning in the first two verses of Ephesians. So that's all we're taking today, one and two, and we'll look at a little overview as well. And I want to show you from those two verses, I want to show you the origin of our calling, the design of our calling, what our calling as believers in Christ ought to produce, and then the reach of our calling. Does it matter 
Where does it matter? Does it matter where we live? Does it matter in the people's lives we live around? And then the fuel of our calling as well. What's the fuel that powers the Christian calling? And what I've really unpacked in the beginning, especially with a silly illustration of the farmer in the clouds, is the difference between the hidden will of God, as often people talk about it, or the hidden calling of God, the particulars that we care so much about as we live our life. What does God want me to do here or there? But see, the Bible also reveals the revealed will of God for your life and my life as followers of Jesus We may have to discover and discern the hidden will of God, but the revealed will of God is very clear when we look at Scripture. So I want to show you what is the revealed will of God for our lives this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let me take a second here and read it. Look at it with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the first verse, the first part of the first verse where Paul identifies himself. He makes a statement about himself that he's an apostle. Not many apostles running around today. There's no job billings for apostles in the way that Paul is describing himself as an apostle. Unless you've seen the risen Lord and been commissioned directly by Jesus, you're not an apostle. He's an apostle, but it wasn't something he worked for. It wasn't his plan. It wasn't something he signed up for and applied to with God. Look at what the text says. He's an apostle of Christ. How? By the will of God. This is God's doing. You know Paul's story, maybe. Anybody know the backstory of Paul before he was Paul? He was Saul. Philippians 3 tells us, Paul gives us his resume, and he says, Look, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee of Pharisee. As to the law, I was blameless. He was a Pharisee, and he pursued Christians to kill them. Remember Acts chapter 7? He was there when the first martyr in Christianity was martyred in Stephen. And then you come to the book of Acts in chapter 9 and you see him walking along where? Damascus Road. And he's walking along Damascus Road. And the Bible says that after he was threatening Christians, which is what he was, he was functionally a Jewish terrorist of Christians in his day. And he was walking along and what happened? Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up and he does three things. Jesus first confronts Paul. And he says, why are you persecuting me? He confronts his sin. And then he calls him to himself. And Paul says, Lord. And then he commissions him and sends him out to the Gentile world to speak to kings about Jesus. And that's what you see the rest of his life. So he is confronted by Jesus, he's called by Jesus, he's commissioned by Jesus. So this wasn't Paul's idea, y'all. He was walking the other way, and God, Jesus comes to him and confronts him with his sin, calls him to himself. He says, Lord, and commissions him. Is that not how your testimony worked? Where at some point, in some place, if you know Jesus... 
that God confronted your sin and presented you the person of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God who could take away your sins. And you believed upon him and he sent you out. You see, here's your first thought this morning. Our calling is God's doing. Our calling is God's doing by the will of God. It wasn't his plan. He was doing the opposite of this plan. He was pursuing his own way and God called him to himself. I don't know how you came to know Christ, if you know Christ. When I was 20 years old, listen, I grew up in the church. I could recite Bible to you. I could even share the gospel with you, but I didn't know Jesus. Think about that, kids. I didn't know Jesus, and I had chosen when I went off in high school and in college to pursue my own plan and my own way that involved a bunch of mess. And I was walking the other way. And Jesus confronted me. He confronted me with my sin. And he called me to himself. Not because I was pursuing it. Not because I was seeking him. But he called me to his, himself by his sovereign grace. While I was a sinner. And you know, after that, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, if this is your experience. After I came to know Jesus, I remember going home a few weeks later and there was still much work and still is much work and sanctification in my life. But I remember being at home and my mom saying, something's really different with you. My mom was the one who had been praying for years and years and years for me to come to know Christ. There's change. And it's not because of me, it's because of Christ. And for a few years later, I remember going back home. You know when you go see people you hadn't seen in a long time? It's a little different than Facebook. When you actually see them and you sit down with them and you're talking about life, and I was like 23 years old, hanging out with my high school buddies, and they were telling me what's going on in their life from college forward and the things that they were pursuing and the callings they were desiring to pursue, and they looked at me, and they said, what about you? And I just kind of took a big gulp. I'm like, well, I'm a Christian now, and I didn't even get any words after that out, and they all just started laughing. They all started laughing because they knew me before, and then they really laughed, and I said, I think I want to be a pastor. And they laughed even more, and you know what I did? It, it kind of hurt, but it was a great opportunity. It's a great opportunity not to draw attention to myself and say, yeah, I've really cleaned my life up. It was a great opportunity to go, you're right. I would laugh too if I went back a few years. But this is what God has done in my life. This wasn't me pulling this off. This wasn't me changing my life and cleaning myself up. This is God's doing. See, our calling is God's doing. And listen, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter your backstory. And maybe you have a religious, pious, I did it all right backstory, like Paul. And maybe God, in his grace, had to save you from that gross error of religiosity. Or maybe you were like me, where you were pursuing your own path, and there was moral failure at every, every end, and God called you out of that. 
Our first truth this morning is our calling is what God does, whether we're religious or whether we're complete failures morally. God has to show up. This is what Paul is saying about himself. This is true of you. This is true of me. It wasn't because you're so smart that you came to know Jesus. It wasn't because you cleaned your life up that you came to know Jesus. Because he showed up like he did with Paul, like he did with me in your life. A calling is God's doing. That's the origin of the call. But there's a design to this call as well. There's an intention to this call as well. Keep looking at the second part of verse 1. By the will of God to who? He calls these people in Ephesus, he calls them saints. And then he says about them that they are faithful in Christ. They are faithful saints. Faithful is not the idea of, well, you're just dependable. You show up and you do all the things, even though that's great. Being dependable is great. It's the idea that you trust and believe in Christ. You see it there? They were faithful, not on their, in, the, in and of themselves. They were faithful in Christ Jesus. They are faithful saints. When you hear the word saint, what might come to mind is, man, those people who don't mess up ever, and they've attained kind of this sainthood. Maybe they've done a miracle. We look up to them, and um, we try to emulate them because they're really holy, and we're not, so saint. And that's not at all the idea, biblically, of saint. By the way, that doesn't exist. Sure, there are people that you ought to look up to in the faith. Maybe kids, your mom and dad, or people around you that walk faithfully with Jesus, and you look up to them. But when the Bible uses the term saint, it's God's doing, and what he's done is he's set you apart. That's the idea of saint, set apart ones. If you know Jesus, you are positionally a saint. You're not just a sinner. You are a saint, according to the scriptures. And you're not just going to see this word in verse 1 here. You're going to continue to see this phrase. You're going to see it in verses 15 in chapter 1 where Paul talks about the Ephesians' love for all the saints, meaning the church in Ephesus or the churches in Ephesus. He uses it in chapter 118 about the inheritance, the future inheritance that we have as saints. In chapter 2, verse 19, he's going to talk about how, long, how we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we've been brought into the kingdom of God, and we are fellow citizens with the saints. In chapter 3, verse 8, he's going to describe himself, Paul, the apostle Paul is going to describe himself as the least of all saints. And then you get to chapter 4, verse 12. He's going to show you the purpose of the pastor elder is to do what? Equip the saints. See, saints is a term of identity. If you're in the family of God, if you know Jesus, you are in Christ. You are a saint. See, second thought this morning. First one is our calling is God's doing. The second one is this. Our calling is to live out our true identity. It's who positionally you are, and Christ wants us to live that identity out. Super Bowl Sunday, right? So I'm going to give you a football example, just an excuse. Super Bowl Sunday, so you know the name Trevor Lawrence. If you follow football, sunshine, he's got the long flowy hair. He's a quarterback for the Jacksonville Jaguars. If you don't know any of those things, you're out anyway. So 
Jacksonville Jaguars. Before he was with Jacksonville, he um, was with Clemson, the Clemson Tigers. This, this is the guy that never lost a football game forever. I don't know if you know his backstory. In high school, he went 37-0, never lost a game. Rough life, huh? College, he went 38-2, so 65-2 career uh, record. Things going pretty well for the guy. And then he gets drafted by the Jaguars. Woohoo! Bottom dwellers. Went 1-15 first year. Went 3-14 second year. This year made the playoffs at 9-8. Dude's like 13-37, so he's seen both sides of it. Interesting, he follows Christ, and I remember this old interview that he had where these people were ooing and aahing over him when he was at Clemson, as anybody would, and asking him about his football life and how his life's perfect and how important football was to him. And he said these words, and I thought this is interesting. He says, football is important, but not everything to me. I put my identity in what Christ says, who Christ thinks I am, who I know that he says that I See, you can be challenged not to live in your identity when things are both going bad and when things are going well. And maybe if I ask you personally, maybe you would say, actually, it's harder to live out my identity in Christ when things are going 65 and 0 or 65 and 2. Or maybe when it's bad. There's a man, a young man who understood and understands his real identity whether he's up or whether he's down. Do you know you're a true identity, C3? Do you know who God has made you, whether it's a day that is up or a day that is down? Are you clear on where your primary identity comes from? Because it doesn't come as important as these things are. It doesn't come from your work. Men, it doesn't come from your work. Ladies, it doesn't come from your family. It doesn't come from success or failure or hobby or tax bracket that you're in or status. And these days, I even got to add these kinds of things. Your primary identity does not come from your skin color. It doesn't come if you're male or female. It doesn't come from your political position. It doesn't come from how you feel. It comes from who God says you are. You are a saint. You're a sinner who God has saved. And you are a saint. Whether you feel like it days or not, you're a saint. If you know Jesus, he's called you to himself. You're a saint. It's his doing. It's your new identity. But what does he want you to do with that? Where does he want you to live that out? Look back at verse 1. To the saints who are somewhere. Where are they? They are in Ephesus. Likely, we think, this is not just one gathered church with hundreds of people. That's really not the way the New Testament churches worked. In Ephesus, it looks like there were probably a dozen little house churches that this letter came to. But they're somewhere. They're in Ephesus. They're meant to live out their identity to know God, to live out their identity and being set apart and holy, 
not just in their little holy huddles, their 12 little house churches, but in Ephesus. What do you know about Ephesus? Ephesus at the time was the fourth largest city in the known world. And it was a port or harbor city, so there was a lot of trade and a lot of wealth, which means it was an incredibly materialistic city. Not only that, it was also incredibly hedonistic. Some of the archaeological finds, what you see, you know, when you come into a, a certain town, you see the, you know, the, the signpost that says Las Vegas. Well, when you come into Ephesus, it looks like from archaeological digs, you saw the sign and right next to it, you saw the arrow that pointed to the brothels in Ephesus. That's who we are, effectively. And so it was hedonistic, it was materialistic, there was much trade and wealth. Not only that, there was tons of contrary belief. These are believers who are taking a new faith message to people who believed in this emperor cult. They worshipped the emperor. There are drawings and findings of how the emperor was standing on top of the world on a picture to demonstrate the power of the emperor. So there was an emperor cult worship. There was, we can't forget, if we think about the city of Ephesus, the temple of Artemis, the seventh, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world world where there was false worship to the goddess Artemis. And literally, this place, this magnificent, huge place, shadowed the life of anyone who lived in, lived in Ephesus, religiously, politically, socially, economically. Try bringing a new faith message to a city like that. That's exactly why Paul shows up. And it's exactly the commission that he gives these people living in this materialistic, hedonistic, false worshiping place in Asia, effectively Turkey at the time. If you want the backstory, how'd you get all that? If you want the backstory, you can go to Acts, Acts chapter 19 and 20. One of the things I love to do when we start new books is take you back to the places so you can read about them. You ought to go to Acts 19 and 20 because it's going to give you a really great background of what it was like when Paul showed up in a city and shared the gospel. So when you go to Acts chapter 19, what you see is a riot. After Paul comes and shares the gospel, there's a riot that breaks out. And to calm that riot down because of the gospel message, the city clerk of Ephesus tried to calm the people down when they were trying to run Paul out of the city. And he says this, look at these words, Acts 19, 35. This tells you something, listen, this tells you something about what they believed and how fervently they believed it. This is the city clerk and his, look at his faith. The city clerk calmed the crowd down and he said, people of Ephesus, what person is there who doesn't know that the city of, Eph of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis? I can just hear him saying this. And of the image that fell from heaven. Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and do nothing rash. And the assembly that was rioting was dismissed. What kind of faith 
does the city clerk have? What kind of faith do these people have? They're 100% sold out on worshiping the god Artemis. Do you see their faith? It's not in Jesus. It's in Artemis. Do you see it? Pastor said this about Ephesus. And we could say it about our own city. Like any other city, Ephesus was a city that exhibited all the normal desperations of a culture in search of something divine. Let me say that again. Like any other city, Ephesus was a city that exhibited all the normal desperations of a culture in search of something divine. Functionally, Ephesus is not so different than the Houston Metroplex, is it? There are all some weird parallels. I'm not trying to make them. Fourth largest city in our nation, port city, a lot of wealth, oil and gas, a lot of materialism, pushing the rat race down the road. We politically might as well be a false cult worship because we fall into certain political worldviews, left, right, or other, to where we worship political candidates. Do we not? As a city? I mean, I've sat down with people, and probably any pastor you talk to has sat down with people, and effectively what they want to know, whether one way or the other, is this. Does your church's biblical view fit inside of my political worldview. Those are interesting discussions (laughs) to which I return gently and graciously, but directly, actually. Your political view needs to come out of your biblical worldview. Do we not live in Ephesus? So let me ask you personally, though, Bring this a little closer to the doorstep of your own heart. What are the normal desperations that you see in Montgomery County around you? The normal desperations. What are the normal desperations of your own heart? See, if God put believers in Ephesus to live out their identity and share the gospel truth of power with people in that culture Do you not think he wants us to do the same in ours? See, that's our calling too. Our calling is to live out our new identity, not just in our little church, but in the world that surrounds us, the Ephesus that surrounds us. See, our calling is meant to reach God's world. The question is, do our hearts break for the things that break the heart of God? What does that look like in your day-to-day life with the people that you interact with? with your family. We're called to live on mission as part of our calling. And last, how are we going to pull all this off? How are you going to be a witness to Ephesus effectively? Are you going to live out that true identity? Is that on your own strength? Look at it. Last, our calling is fueled, not by ourselves, but by the gospel of grace. Look at the last phrase there in verse 2. You see, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you notice in that phrase, look at it, 
that grace and peace, where do they come from? They come from people, they come from this world. They're not of human origin, are they? From, grace and peace come from God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that Christ is on plane with the Father. He is divine. Grace and peace don't have human origin. They have a divine origin. Can I ask you a question? Do you find much grace on 1488 on a Monday morning, or I-45 on a Monday morning? Do you find much peace, really, from that yoga mat? You got to go back, get, get back in traffic after. You don't find grace and peace in this world. It comes from God himself. It's otherworldly. It's a gift that God gives when he calls us by his doing to himself, This is the word we get here for grace is charis. It's this gift. It's this undeserving gift of his grace that he shows us through his son. That the weight of our sin lays on us and yet Christ takes it away. The penalty and the curse of sin away and death. By his grace, we don't deserve it. It's undeserved. And what comes out of grace, which is just another word really for the gospel, The truth of the gospel, what comes out of grace is peace. Peace with God because the Bible says that we are at war with God because of our sin. Because, but Jesus has made peace with God for us. Not only peace with God, but peace with each other. It's the beautiful gift of the gospel. And so our calling is fueled by the gospel. This is a gospel greeting, verse 1. And two. See, it's the gospel of grace that changes people. It's the power of the gospel of grace that helps us live out our identity, that helps us live on this mission. Do you know that truth? Do you know the truth of the good news of the gospel? By no effort of yourselves, Christ has died on a cross for your sin and my sin that we might know him and walk with him and be empowered not just with the gospel for what when we were a kid and we came to know Jesus 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but that same power is at work today. We sang about it. Christ is all in all. He's at work. You know, the best way that I could describe the fuel that the gospel brings I could come up with a lot of illustrations. We could look at our own lives. Or I could just go back to Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus to show you. You know, I said there was a riot. There was a riot when Paul came and shared the gospel and the clerk shut it down. Why was there a riot? Paul shows up in Ephesus and always the first place that he goes, if there is a synagogue, he goes there to share the gospel with the Jews first, and then the Gentiles. So he goes there, and he shares, and he defends the faith, and people come to know Jesus. And then for the next two years, and you don't see this anywhere else with Paul, for two years he taught in Ephesus. He stayed there. That's the longest he stayed anywhere. He taught the people of God, the Word of God. He shared the gospel in Ephesus, in the halls of Tyrannus. It's the first theological school, if you're into that. And he taught there, and 
It made quite the fuss in the city of Ephesus. And the text says this, and if you go to chapter 19, it says this, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of God, both Jews and Greek. And then you see a couple of stories. Remember the seven sons of Sceva? You see them, and they, they know about Paul, and they've heard that he's cast out demons, and there's power in this message, because the other thing about the Ephesians, they love the spiritual forces, and they love power, which you're going to see all the way through this book. And so they try to go cast out demons in the name of Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. They're Jews. They don't know Jesus. And the, and the evil spirit says to them, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but we don't know you. How about that? Oops. And that story spread in Ephesus as well. And the text says that the people were afraid, but then they began to exalt the name of Jesus because of his power. It wasn't just a message. It was a message of power and change. And then you see something else. People started, stopped practicing the worship at the temple Artemis. When they would come to know Jesus, they would take their metal objects of worship, their idols that they had, and they would toss them away. Well, those metal idols were sold by silversmiths, and they made a living out of making idols for the people of Ephesus. And it was hurting their bottom line so much so that it was going to shut them down. So they, what'd they do? When it hurt their pocketbook, that's when they rioted. They came after Paul because he was hurting their pocketbook. Why? Because the gospel had spread through the city of Ephesus. That's why. The gospel was at work. Can I tell you that same gospel, C3, hasn't changed. It's still at work in people's hearts. It's the power of God for salvation, the Bible says. Do you believe that? Have you experienced that? Are you sharing your faith with others? Your takeaway today is this. The gospel is still at work in God's world. And that's what you're going to see in the book of Ephesus. Ephesians, Ephesus, Ephesians. The first three chapters, you're going to see the power of the gospel at work and what it does positionally for you and me, that it gives us an inheritance, it gives us eternal life, it takes us from a place of bondage and sin and makes us alive in Christ, shows us God's mercy. And then chapters four through six of this book are going to show us how the power of the gospel not only works in our salvation, but also in the Christian life. And it affects things like unity in a church. Y'all, there's no way we could have unity in our church without God being at work. If you've been at church long enough, you know that. So the gospel is our fuel for unity in the church, he's going to say. Unity across racial lines, across gifted lines, it's also the source of our love for one another. You don't have it in you. I'm just going to tell you. You don't have it in you to love people without the gospel truth working in your life. And this is what he says in chapter 4. Love works itself out because of these gospel truths. And then he's going to continue 
through this book. Talking about unity and love, it also is how relationships work. How does marriage work? Marriage is hard. You take two broken people and you throw them together. Two broken, selfish people, redeemed or not redeemed, put them together and you got problems. But Ephesians 5 says, no, it's the Holy Spirit that's at work in marriage to make our marriages look like the beauty of the gospel. That husbands would love their wives as Christ loved the church. Whoo! That's difficult. Wives, that you would submit and follow and honor your husband. It's hard stuff fueled by the gospel that we could parent our children in the teaching and instruction of the Lord. That takes God's help because we would know how to work well with others in our workplace. The book of Ephesians says the gospel is the fuel for that too. So the gospel is at work in God's world. I'm anxious to get to next week and take the spring to continue to unpack the beauty of the gospel in the book of Ephesians.